Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at MindBuddyGreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. This episode is sponsored by MindBodyGreen Classes and Trainings, where you can learn from world-class experts from the comfort of your own home. The MindBodyGreen Class Library has educational programs you can't find anywhere else. From yoga and meditation to nutrition and personal growth, our classes have something for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a wellness warrior, MindBodyGreen Classes will take you further on your wellness journey. You can find our classes at mindbodygreen.com classes. That's mindbodygreen.com slash classes. Enter the promo code podcast on checkout to receive 15% off your next purchase. Cheryl O'Loughlin is currently the CEO of Rebel and the author of Killing It. Formerly, she's the CEO of Cliff Bar and the CEO of Plum Organics. When we think of entrepreneurial CEOs and natural products today, we immediately think of Cheryl. Hey, it's Jason Walker, founder and CEO of Mind Body Green, and we are here at Mind Body Green headquarters in Brooklyn with the amazing Cheryl O'Loughlin, the best-selling author of the amazing book *Killing It*, which anyone who's an entrepreneur or wants to be an entrepreneur must read. It's like required reading; otherwise, you're just going <laughs> at you. it blind and naive, and it's going to be painful. <laughs> um, and she's also the CEO of Rebel, which is like one of my favorite beverage companies. Thank you so much for being oh here. Oh my God, Jason, it's such an honor to be here, truly. Well, thank you. And what I love about you is you are so open and honest in your book, and and you really talk about the entrepreneurial journey in a way that's authentic and real and something I, where I want to start is like this idea of how entrepreneurs are made. Mm. Are they born? So talk to me a little bit about what you were, your childhood and how that <laughs> shaped you. Well, I actually, you know, it, it's, it didn't start that way that I <laughs> got up one day and said, I want to start a company. Here's a lemonade stand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's go. No, I actually was, um, I was really into issues around social justice. I was raised by a single mom. My father passed away when I was six years old. And so, I, you know, I wanted to change the world. And when I was going to college, she said to me, well, you know what, I, I, I can't continue to pay for school. And so here, you know, I'd been raised by a single mom and, you know, money was, it was a concern. And so I thought, well, I, I, I thought I was going to actually be a psychologist so I can, you know, help people. I wanted to help people, you know, get through hard times. Those are useful times. skills for being a CEO. Yes, <laughs> and I didn't know that at the time, but yeah, it came in handy later, later on. And so when I heard that she couldn't pay for school anymore, I thought, well, you know, being a psychologist is going to take me forever, so I'll go into business. And... I thought I did a deal with the devil. In fact, my, my college, uh, my high school friend, my best friend, next door neighbor, we were both into, you know, how do we change the world? And she called, we called each other up one day and she was going for, to Michigan State, I was going to Michigan. And so she asked me, you know, have you chosen your major? And I said, yeah, you know, I decided to go into business. And she said to me, shame on you, and hung up on me, <laughs> literally. 
So this was, I went through this cognitive dissonance for so long, but then I discovered marketing and I thought, well, at least I can study people's minds, even if I couldn't be a psychologist. And I, you know, I worked at these big uh, multinational companies and then I just started realizing, well, you know, I'd like to find a place where it was consistent with my passions, which were the outdoors and athletics. And that's when I found Cliff Bar. Yeah. And so talk to me about that. What stage of the company was Cliff Bar at? Because everyone yeah. thinks Cliff Bar is huge now and a great story with Gary and the growth. Amazing. Like, where were they just when you amazing. joined? And what drew, how did that happen? So. I had been actually on the Chicago waterfront, and this was in 97. I was working for Quaker Oats at the time, and my running buddy hands me my first Cliff Bar. He was the guy who always told me what shorts to wear, what shoes to buy, and everything else. He hands me my first Cliff Bar, and I tried it, and I'm like, wait a minute. You know, energy bars taste taffy and sticky and yucky. Right. And this is really good. It was like power bar, like the dominant player back then? Yeah, it was power bar all the way and then balance bar and cliff bar was, you know, not many people had heard of cliff bar. And I got all excited. I'm like, oh, this is really cool. And serendipity would have it. Literally three days after that happened, I got an, uh, an alumni newsletter from my business school about starting a brand management function at Cliff Bar. And here at, at Quaker, I was doing brand management. And so I jumped at the chance. So I go over there, and here I had learned in my career at marketing, the, the common wisdom was that you had to be very separate from the consumer. You had to study them and analyze the data, and God forbid you were the consumer. That was, you know, then you were going down a really bad path because you couldn't be objective. So then I walk into Cliff Bar for my interview. This is in 97. And there's dogs running around the floor greeting me at the door. There's bikes hanging on the wall. And can't find any people. (laughs) So I walk to the back of the building. And there's this huge climbing wall. In front of the climbing wall is literally the whole entire company participating in a stretching class. And Gary Erickson, the co-founder and now owner of the company, pops up with his four-year-old daughter, Lydia. And he's like, come with me to my, to my office. So we, you know, I go with him to my office, and he takes Lydia, and he pops her down on his lap. And he starts asking me interview questions. And then he's kind of there whispering in each other's ears. And then he's asking me questions. And all of a sudden, I was like, this man is not talking to me as just a company owner, he's talking to me as a dad, as a husband, as a baker, as, a, as an athlete. And, I, you know, here's, here is a whole person authentically just putting himself out there. And it was so different than what I had learned. And so I jumped at the chance to work there. And it was a $45 million company at the time, which I thought was so small. I'm like, right. what am I doing? Oh, then I started rights. Blum from scratch from nothing. $45 million, you know, yeah. with Rebel. Oh, my God, that seems ginormous now. So how many employees? What, were the, what was the headcount? Oh, geez, I can't remember at the time, but it was probably like 25, 30. Wow. And so talk about your, so you eventually become CEO. So, yeah, I was there for a total of 10 years. And... I became CEO in, nine, in 2004, and that was really after Gary in 2000. Sorry, I almost sold the company. Right, it's a great story. It's an awesome story. Do you want to share that? Well, I always remember our competitors 
a power bar and yep. balance bar had all been bought up by the big multinationals and we were told as a small privately held company and remember we were we were far behind them we were number far behind number three we we were told we'd die we'd never make it so we did the whole road show yep. and found a buyer and here was gary i'll always remember this day sitting in his office in his chair and in front of the desk is the investment banker, the company that was going to buy Cliff Bar, and the lawyer, and his 50-50 co-founder was sitting right next to him. And, you know, his hands like this way from signing the contract and kind of stood up and he said, I got to go for a walk and walked out of the office, walked around, came back. He looked at them all, including his 50-50 co-founder and said, I can't sell. And they were a significant number too, from what I understand. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, tell you, we ended up to buy her out, not for any investment capital. It was ninety million dollar company at that time, a forty-five million dollar loan, which you would never get now, to buy her out. And it was in Gary began to articulate his reason for doing that, which was this vision of using the power of a company to do better in the world. And no one, except for Anita Roddick at the body shop and Ben and Jerry's were talking like about it. It was very new. Or, yeah. yeah. And sustainability, you never heard that word. Organic was associated only with produce. And here, you know, as I'm thinking about my life is coming full circle, like, my God, if he's right, we could change the world through business in a very positive way. Like, oh my God, this is what I've always wanted to do. And I had the honor of being named CEO in 2004 and so he ends up just a complete so he ends up partner walks away he buys out the partner away. he gets a loan and then the other part of the story like the the guy the bank puts in he ends up hiring it was Devin right yes he ends up hiring the guy yeah. the, the guy the Devin's bank awesome. the guy that the bank put in to yeah. make sure he was good on the debt like he, internally ends up leaving to work for <laughs> and he is such a wonderful, good, through his soul person. And so it was, it, and, but at first the whole company knew we were up for sale and it was Yeah, like what's really going on hard. and people's like, everyone's thinking there's an exit and-, and Oh yeah, and, and, we're like, all like, oh, we were all devastated. So what, what's the, yeah, what's the communication and how do you get people excited that about- <laughs> Well, that's, you know, it was, first they went from, oh my God, what's happening in our baby company, it's going away, to devastation. Um, for me, it was like amazing because I was potentially going back to my original employer that I left Cliff Bar for. And to get it back, it was putting the company on resuscitation. I mean, the good news is that he had told people beforehand, so they became part of the process. So it wasn't a big surprise it was happening. But when he was able to articulate why he made that choice and how bold that was to do it, to walk away from all that money. Uh, and gosh, you know, people ask me all the time, like, isn't it all about the money? Look what this man did. And that like was the model, role model now, now forever that I've had in my head. And so what he talked about was this vision and help people to believe that we could do something so great. We had purpose behind what we were doing. And you know, when I was named CEO, I had the joy to be able to operationalize this beautiful vision. 
And we did. I mean, people in the company, none of us had physical equity, not, not me included, because Gary felt so burnt by what happened with his um, co-founder. But we all had emotional and spiritual equity in that company. We felt like Which we owned it. Which is hard to do. Like, what, what's the secret? And I know that there's a program. Like, what, what's the secret of the Cliff Bar culture where you have that real ownership Without real ownership to some Well, degree. now and, it is real ownership. I know that, there. but back then, like, but clearly, what, what was the secret sauce? It was having a purpose, and you know, it's, and we'll talk about Rebel later. But I see it to this day. It's it's magic. People believe in something so much bigger than the company itself. I mean, for me now with Rebel, I go out to fight trafficking every day, human trafficking. That's what I wake up for with this brand. I jump out of bed to work on something like that. Every employee there does. So, so what do you think the, you know, before, like we'll go to the timeline from there to, to Plum and, mm -hmm. um, but, but like, what did you learn then or, or today? Like, what do you think makes a great entrepreneurial leader or CEO? That's a big question, and I, I think part of it is connecting everybody to purpose yep. and having a purpose that you really believe in and make sure that everybody has a way to connect in, a doorway to connect in. So there's some people that might not, for example, at Rebel, they are excited about the anti-trafficking thing, but they're also excited about our commitment to the art of food. Yeah. And so that's why they're drawn in. Or they're drawn in by this community of really cool people that care about the world and do good things for the world. Helping people to understand there's a connection point wherever you go, and it doesn't have to be my connection point that I'm telling you. But I think another really important thing, I know a really important thing, is understanding the humanness of the company, of every single person in it and, and of ourselves. And being able to communicate that in a way that's so authentic that people, that's, that is truly authentic in your core. I wear my heart on my sleeve. That's what I do. And so it allows people the space to be themselves as well. And we celebrate people in their individuality, their rebelness now in Rebel. And like the other day, I mean, this is such a small example, but Paulo, our chief innovation officer and the co-founder of the company, the guy that creates these beautiful products, he just like, he taught himself guitar in two months by watching the internet. And so the other day he just jumps up on the table and he starts playing the guitar, and all of us just kind of got together and started singing. So then we brought the band actually to the Natural Products Expo show and just spontaneously started playing in the booth. And random people came in and picked up instruments. It's like that connects us with people. I tell people that I love them because I do. They're part of my heart and soul. And I'll tell you one more thing, and we can get into this more, but I don't talk about balance because I think balance is bullshit, to be honest. I don't think it's possible, and it just puts more stress on people to think that they need to be in balance. But there's an ecosystem of your life, and that ecosystem has all the things that are important to you. And it is so important to be managing every part of that ecosystem. It, it won't always be in balance, 
but to understand I need to bring out this part of my life and bring it in some more. And this part of my life, my family, my friends, I encourage everybody at work, you have got to be having a life, celebrating on the weekend. Right. So, so what does, you talk about this in great detail in your book, like what does balance look like to you and how do you balance, well lack, for lack of a better <laughs> word, like how do you balance like as an entrepreneur or CEO, like, you need to be immersed. It needs to be consuming mm-hmm. to some degree, but at the same time you've got family, friendships, life. Right. How do you... Well, How do you do all of it? I'll give you philosophically and then, then some examples of what, of what I do. So philosophically to me and everything that I've learned in, in the real dark times that I've been through through the course of my career, I realized that having those connection points to your family and your friends and people that love you way outside of what you're doing with your company helps to give you perspective on the world. It lifts you up, it gives you energy, and that's what you bring back into your work. So I know with my people and my team, if they're out there doing a hike, um, having a good dinner with friends, learning about things outside of going to see art, they bring that into the company, and the health of the company is that much stronger when they bring that. So to me, it's not just about have a life and then come to work, or don't have a life, just come to work. They all, it's why I talk about an ecosystem. It's all feeding each other. You can't break away those pieces. And when entrepreneurs, if we become so obsessive and so lock ourselves in isolation, we lose that life that we can bring and infuse into the company and that excites everyone else in the company. So here's little things that I do. Dinner time with my kids. I have a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old boy. We sit down at dinner every night. Phones go off no matter how tempting it is for my son. And, you know, my husband's so tempted to look up things on the Internet with all the facts we're trying to, to find out. But we don't. Go, that goes away. And we t- all talk about our days. Then my husband and I sit down and continue to talk about our day. And dinner might take an hour and a half. And then you know, I go, might go up and do some more work. But at 9 o'clock, 9.30, it is shutdown time. It is time for me to sit there, hold my husband's hand, watch TV or read a book together. That is time that gives me energy. It is my meditation. Then what time do you wake up in the morning then? I wake up in the morning at, what time do I wake up? Actually, it's been about 6.45, believe it or not, okay. which way late. I go for my run, and then I, then I dig in. But I'm ready. I'm in the space so that I can do it and put my energy in. And I'm very, you learn as a parent, so when, too, to be efficient. But I guess the thing is, when you're on, you're on. You're there. Like When, when you're I'm working, you're 100% I'm working. On. You're not distracted. You're not you know, surfing the wet. You're there. And when you're off, you're off. I'm there, but at the same time, like the days I work from home, my kids will come in the room and say hi and give me a kiss. I can take five minutes to say, hey, how are you? How was your day? And you know, when I get on my next call, I'm that much more excited because I had that infusion of love. So I don't think it's so separate. So, so much of a company's success is people. And mm-hmm. so what do you look for when you hire? What qualities do you look for in people? Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's such it's, it's, a relevant question because we, we just more that we actually tripled our company in about three months just now. 
Maybe yeah. we can come back and talk about that later. <laughs> oh my a, God. A, but a, the thing is, your question is so relevant because what we, we wanted to make sure that we had world-class talent and, and we, we've gotten that. And at the same time, again, having all my experiences, I know culture is essential. And we've made a couple mistakes at, sure. at Plum in the beginning, but I don't know, for some reason, everyone we've brought in now like fits like a glove. So what is that? Well, you know, we, we always ask people in every interview, if you were a plant, what plant would you be and why? And then that you take that plant persona with you in all meetings going forward. And we introduce our plants to each other as we bring in new employees. Um, we, I don't even know what I'd say to that, I, I, that question. <laughs> I bet you'll find all of a sudden it's going to pop. Well, well, to me, it's just I, I go straight to cactus because I just love cactus. There's nothing there to go. do with, with traits of cactus or I just love cactus. But you love cactus, so that's part of you. <laughs> and it's connecting people with you. Okay, so you start with plants and then what so else? So we start with plants and then we move on to, you know, celebrating plant-based meals together. And we, um, we ask them about what, what their philosophy is on life and on the world. And we, we talk about before they come in, we have every single person in the company. They interview with every single person in the company. Really? Um, yeah, because we know that if they're clicking with everyone, they're going to click when they come in. And what, what is fascinating about it, for example, let me give you a quick example. We just hired a senior um, vice president of sales. Uh, this guy, Chuck, who just came from, he was the senior vice president over at Kind Bar. The man is a rock star. And you would think that kind of role would be really difficult to hire for, really difficult, because, you know, you hire people with a lot of experience, so they're going to really fit in. But Chuck gets it. He worked at Stonyfield. He, he, before that, he has that sense of a company already in his heart and soul. He's got that purpose. So what are, what are the qualities of people that succeed? Like, like for us, for instance, like we have four qualities that are on our wall here. Um, work ethic, team player, um, their passion, and uh, passion, work ethic, team player, and accountability, essential ownership, accountability. Like you, those are the four qualities. Yeah. Like you exhibit those qualities, like you're passionate about wellness, you're accountable, you work hard, uh, you're, you're a team player, you're, you're gonna succeed here for the most part. Like what does that look like for you? Like when you look at people, like obviously, okay, they have the skills, they can do this job, like relevant experience, but like what, right. do, you, what do you wanna know like about them? Are they rebel hearted? So what does that mean? Rebel hearted to us means that they, are compassionate, they love, they, they love in every way, they have grit, they want to move mountains, they, I, one of the words that I talk about a lot is help, to have the vulnerability to ask for help, and I tell people I don't see help as a sign of weakness, it is a sign of strength because you care so much about the company that you would say, I need help right now. And the fact that other people are always out there to support you. Um, so, what are the things you run away from? The qualities, like in an interview, there are certain things where it's like you ask good questions, don't you, Jason? <laughs> you know, it's somebody that I can that I sense is they're only when it, in it 
to win it at all costs. And you get that from how they talk about their philosophy of life. It's all the things that you ask them around the sides where you really get them, where you really get to understand them. You ask them about what is, you know, tell me about a time on your weekend that you had, you had a tough time with somebody. Tell me about a time that you truly expressed love. It's all those things that you wouldn't just get from just asking a question about a skill set. A skill set doesn't tell you much. There's so many people that can have great skill sets, but they just don't think of it. Tell me about a time where you're compassionate and find if they under, understand that and find if they're willing to be vulnerable even in that interview process. I think it was an old school of no one can reveal their, you know, their softer sides. And I listen for that and I think that's important. So people who don't admit, admit vulnerability or right. weakness, like that, is that what you sort of run? And, and, and yeah. I get it's nuanced too because I get people are trying to impress you, they're yes. interviewing, so it's a balance. Yeah, and you, you see it also in how they express even passion, like how right. they... So that's the, a, what's an example of that? I'm curious about that one. So someone's like super passionate about natural products and, or wellness or the rebel mission, like what would be the wrong, like a red flag way to say... Well, actually I was talking to, uh, a while ago, I was talking to a woman when I was had been running the Center for Entrepreneurial Studies over at Stanford yeah. Graduate School of Business for a little while, and this woman was going out to interview for jobs and I'm talking to her and she's answering my questions so succinctly and, right. you know, it was like, start, stop, start, stop. Right. And I, I stopped her and I said, she was actually going to interview with Plum, actually. And I stopped her and I said, you know, if, if you, Neil, was, still, was running the company at the time, my co-founder of Plum, and I said, if you talk to Neil about that, he, the answer of your interview is going to be, thanks, see you later. It's, you've got, what is driving you to want to work there? Why do you care so much about it? That needs to come through in every way in your heart and soul, and that's what's going to come out in your advice. You've got to show that you care, that you really, really care. And I find that a lot of people go into that mode in an interview where they're so fearful that they become a robot. And right, and they're so polished and they just tell you exactly what you hear. Exactly, they yeah. practice and practice right. and practice to the point where right. it's not real anymore. So you mentioned Plum, I wanna go, go there and talk about that journey. So you leave, you, you, to start Plum, co-founders of, of Plum, we started out as a Nest Collective, mm -hmm. and, and just talk to me about like the, the vision there, and, <laughs> and and like quickly that journey from like zero all the way to what is now today Plum. And, and yeah, it was like I was at a crazy ride, and after that I needed a big time break. <laughs> yes, I'll tell you the ups and downs, and we can talk also about what happened personally along well, the way. Well, yeah, that we're gonna talk about that too. Harder. But yes. But we, so Neil and I started out with this really grand vision, which was that we were seeing 
all these organic, soulful brands being bought out by big companies and at the time losing their souls. And we thought there's got to be a different way. And, you know, we started looking at companies like I worked for General Foods, which is now Kraft at the beginning of my career and saying these are an, a, a conglomerate of brands and leveraging the scale of those brands to have enough, you know, substantialness to be able to create big growth for the company and also get a lot of efficiencies. But, you know, what? A, why isn't that happening in the organic world? So we said we wanted to start a company where we would buy small organic brands mm -hmm. and help them scale their revenue, but also their soul. And build your own portfolio and, and leverage resources of the umbrella. Exactly. Yep. So we were talking about oh, this organic portfolio of, of inside the body, outside the body, and, and on the body. And it was like this huge thing. And one day, Neil and I were on a run. This is how we always got our thinking time was going on runs together. And I said, Neil, I think that our portfolio is just, this is unwieldy. It, you know, we've got to get a little bit more focused in it. So we started digging deep. And we both had kids at the time, little kids. And we were trying to feed them healthy and organic. But at the same time, if you walk through the, the shelves of Whole Foods, like for kids, the, the products didn't yeah. taste that good. The packaging was not attractive and wasn't cool. And so, uh, you know, we were both packing lunch boxes because, our, you know, we had busy spouses too. We didn't have time to make a homemade meal. And fi finding the whole box would come back full of stuff that was all mushed together because they, they didn't want to eat that food. So we said, we got to bridge this gap somehow. Um, and, you know, it was so important at the time because obesity was just becoming on the the skyrocket now all these parents were talking to like i'm having the same problem went to the natural products expo and realized that year this was in 2007 no one was addressing this issue and we're like this is a can grand canyon size crater of an opportunity that nobody is taking advantage of and we are passionate in our heart and soul so we started out that way and we had bought um, the consumer products business for a company called Revolution Foods yeah. who was dedicated to healthy school lunches and we were we were going to be about food for healthy school lunch boxes. And so we start, we were working on creating those products and we came out, we were doing some research in Europe and in Japan and found this packaging, this squeezy yeah. pouch. And there was one kid's product that had been introduced in the United States. So we decided to do a Revolution Foods product in that squeezy pouch for, for toddlers, or for, I'm sorry, for young kids for their lunchboxes. And one day we were at um, the Natural Products Expo when we introduced these products. And this gentleman walks up and He's looking at the, the pouch and he's checking it out, looking at reading the ingredients and he's, Neil and I are standing there and he's like, hey, you know, I want to introduce myself. I'm the buyer for um, Toys R Us Babies R Us. And I've been looking for a product like that for babies and I'm going to import it from another country uh, unless, you know, you have a way of doing this for this product you're doing for kids for babies. And we're like, we know nothing about baby food. We're like, well, let us take this back for consideration. So we go back to our company 
well, you know, we got this challenge from this guy, and we know nothing about what we're doing, but if we can figure this out, he said, you have two months to, to, to get me a product. Our um, vision was to help kids develop a lifetime love of healthy eating. If we can do this, think of the difference we can make into people's lives. And everyone's like, and I, we said it was going to be really hard, and we were going to do a lot of neat, late nights, and everyone's like, let's do it. And so we crashed and burned to make this thing happen, made so many mistakes, but we came out with that product within two months, and, uh, and he was like, the buyer, was, Paul, was like, I can't believe you came out with this this quickly. He took the product in ever since then. He took every product we had ever made. We were like his innovation driver. He dedicated this beautiful shelf to, to Plum. And in fact, we had, we had bought, I forgot to say that part, we had bought, bought a small company yeah. called Plum that was some million dollars at the time. And GG Chang. What's that? What was it at the time? It was, it was about $800,000 at the time. just under a million. Got yeah, it. and so Gigi Chang, who was sure. the founder of that original company, was doing it in babe, organic babe, frozen baby food. Yeah. And she wanted innovation, so she sold into um, to the Nest Collective. And so we put the brand, this yeah. Squeezy Puffs brand, under Plum, and uh, it was the domino so, effect. So was that, at that moment, did you like? Did you know like we've we've got something big here? We weren't. We or, didn't know. We didn't. We weren't sure. We 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 believed in it. What was it? Was there a defining moment, or was it a yeah. series of moments when you were like, okay, fasten your seatbelts. We've really got something. Let's go. A couple things. One was it was not fasten your seatbelts yet, but we were doing some one-on-one um, -on -one interviews with with actually moms and their babies and. Moms would, we, we would give the product to the mom and said, you know, give, feed this to your baby. See, see what you think of this product. So you know what she did first? She put it in her mouth and tried it first. And all of a sudden what we realize is, aha, she's the one who is deciding that it tastes good. And it was so much better than all those other overcooked, terrible baby jars that her eyes lit up. And said, so, okay, there's something here. Then it started seeing more because we started seeing people walking around the park with uh, their babies eating the product. That was an incredible moment to, was asking, asking them about if they had ever heard of plum and the lady opens the top of her stroller and the baby's eating a plum. Oh my God, that was <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> but when we really started seeing it was the velocity was moving similar to baby jars, which were half the cost. So parents were willing to pay the premium for it. So we knew we were serving a need that was not served. And the retailers, baby food had been a loss leader category. They lost money on every jar. We were coming in and giving them their normal markup that they needed for their stores. They're seeing the velocity and they're realizing this is a category game changer. Plus, they didn't have jars break, so they didn't have that kind of loss. So it worked for the retailer and the consumer, and it came together, and that's when it really started taking off. And one of the things that entrepreneurs, gosh, need to understand is it's not about building distribution doors. It's about making sure the velocity is so strong that every door you go into, it never stops. And that's when it started exploding. 
And so what was like the revenue, like in terms of that business? Oh, uh, the trajectory, yeah. uh, it, you know, it, it was about, I can't remember what it was the first year. I mean, maybe a couple million. A couple million. Then it, three years later, we were about 15. And then it started, you know, 45, 30. Right. Yeah, 40. Then it was 100 million in less than five years. Wow. From, from the start. And yeah. So, so towards the end of that journey, what was, <laughs> what was it was that like? Well, I, you know, I had been burnt out beyond belief. Yeah, I want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, so I had decided this is my time to say goodbye. So I didn't stay through um, the wholesale. So how do you know, like, how did talk to me about, like, knowing when, because I think a lot of entrepreneurs at some point say, like, I'm burnt. Like, you, yeah. have, you have moments. Maybe it's just you need to get away for a day or go for a walk. Sometimes it's a vacation, but... I think a lot of people have those moments. How did you know, like, I really need to... Well, should I start by sharing the mm -hmm. blue sky story? Because that will lead to Absolutely. it. So as I'm starting Plum, uh, for some stupid reason, my husband and I decided it was a good idea to start another company at the same time. So my husband, start, my husband Patrick, started a company called Blue Sky Family Club. And, you know, it was this great concept. It was a indoor play space for kids where they can be healthy, uh, doing creative activities, doing exercise, eating healthy food, and parents could relax with a Much glass better version of Chuck E. Cheese. It was, yeah. That's what we called it, yeah. the anti-Chuck E. Cheese. And, you know, it's every parent we told was like, that's the best concept ever. Total validation, right? And um, we thought, well, we have a balanced portfolio here because I have a VC-backed company, so we had less financial risk, but we didn't control our destiny as much. And with him, we took all the financial risks and had a lot of debt, but we thought we had a lot of control of our destinies. Perfect balanced portfolio. So I'll always remember the day, you know, we had opened the doors of Blue Sky and then... Patrick came home one day on this seemingly normal day, and this was about three months in. And um, he's white as a ghost and, you know, cold to, literally cold to the touch. It was like touching a dead person. And I kept saying, what's, what's wrong? And, and he kept saying, he couldn't say anything. And it was, felt like hours, and it might have been minutes. I don't even know. And I asked him years later, why didn't you, why couldn't you say anything to me? And he said, because I knew as soon as I did, our lives would change forever. And he said, everything's gone. Uh, we had been, you know, starting a restaurant, this, you know, all the city delays and we were bleeding money. And I had no idea how far it had gotten because it was so far so fast. And I, I think he was not even realizing how fast it was it was happening. You know, and he always thought he's such an optimist. We'd, we'd figure sure. it out. And we're MBAs. We'll really figure it out. Right. So um, we lost every penny we ever made. We almost went personally bankrupt because we had so much debt. We had to move out of our house immediately. Um, to if to this place where you know this crappy apartment where there were I would hear gunshots out out of the door. I mean it was just we were in desperate shape, and I, I was so worried because Patrick was I mean here's a total optimist again, and he became 
extremely depressed. He's in bed every night, you know, every morning, couldn't sleep for months. He had to go to the Stanford Sleep Clinic to learn how to sleep again. He would hold me in the morning and I had, I had a break away to go to my job at Plum. You know, my kids, I'm worried about this. They were eight and five. I'm worried about the stress that they're feeling. And I was worried about the ups and downs which happened five million times a day at Plum. And it was so beyond stressful and it felt so out of control. I was a runner, so I started running more and I, you know, started running every day and I was cutting back on what I was eating, you know, at the time. And the friends and family would say, oh, you're losing some weight. And I'm like, cool, you know, this is great. Who doesn't want to lose a few pounds? And then I started running some more and here, you know, I have there's two sides of an entrepreneur, you know, there's the the light that we can talk about and what makes us good at what we do, but there's also the dark side. So started becoming a little obsessed with them running because I'd go out and give me these endorphins that I needed to help get through the day. So I ran more and more and had to do more than the day before, than the day before that. And so I, and my friends kept saying, you're losing too much weight. And little did I know, and I realized, you know, it took me a long time after to realize that I had developed anorexia. And all I, and it was my way of controlling. It was my only way of controlling those numbers on the scale were the ones that told me I was doing a good job. We obsess so much about the quantitative part of life to their detriment. So how did you get through that and the hell you went through with your husband and the fine and the kid? Like, how did you get I, through all of it? I, you know, I, at first I became because those a are rock. these are things that like kill marriages. These are things that like Absolutely. kill people, and they kill. Thus, my book called Clint Kill Right, Ed. right, right. But like that, most people don't go through two big things at once, like numerous things at once, like you went through and come out the other end. They don't. Um, it's deep, deep love and respect right. for my husband um, and for each other. So when it first happened, I became a rock. I mean, it's almost like I didn't feel for a little bit. All I could do was be there for Patrick. and. I, you know, I had said when we started Blue Sky, we didn't start it for a little while. And Patrick was really good about waiting to say, until Cheryl says yes, I'm not going to do this. And when I said yes, it became our decision, not his decision. So I had as much ownership of what happened as he did. And so there was no blame. There was never any blame. And I remember... Him saying to me, you know, when we were going through therapy and all this stuff, and it's individual therapy and it's supporting each other. And he said, he brought me into his therapist one day and he said, Cheryl's going to be really hate me one day. He's, she's really going to, my God, this is kind of like bringing me back to stuff I haven't talked about in a while. And, um, and I, I can't, I'm never, there's no, I'll never hate you. And, he started getting better and get, get, became his whole self, and I fell, fell apart. And he became my rock. And we were always there for each other. We never blamed each other. We had such deep respect. I mean, truly, in my soul, I 
feel Patrick is the greatest person in the world. He's so unbelievably talented. And because this went, I said, he had the courage to do it. And it has made him better at now what he does in innovation and in the job that he does. That's what got us through it, and we're stronger together. And actually, today, why I'm getting teary-eyed, it's my 20-year anniversary today. Oh, my today. God, congratulations. Yeah. Thank That's you. That's huge. He's in San Francisco, uh, and I'm here. But. Well, we don't have a My Money Green corporate jet where you can fly it. <laughs> Maybe someday. Someday. Um, so what advice do you have for couples when one person in that couple is an entrepreneur or thinking about becoming an entrepreneur or, you know, is framing framing that up for like, okay, this is what we're going to do or I'm going to do. Yeah, well, such an important question. And I think that part of it is that you have to do the journey together. And I remember one thing that Mark Rampola, who's my board member and the founder of um, Zico Coconut Water, he said with his wife, Mora, he, when he started the company, he actually put some equity in her name. So she felt that she was actually a part of the company, even though they share everything in terms of marriage, um, but that equity, so that she felt a part of it. And you have to have the hard conversations to begin with before it ever starts to say, you know, it's gonna be intense. Um, there's gonna be a times that we're not together and I'm not gonna be able to fully be there, but make a commitment to each other to talk. And it's not just the commitment of the entrepreneur to talk about the business obsessively and what they're going through, but it's having the respect for your significant other to say, your life is important too, and the things that you're going through in your life are important too, and we need to be there for each other to get there and help each other through, and understanding the implication on your family and your kids and evaluating, which we didn't do a good job of, evaluating your risk. So we took on way more than we should have as a family. Um, and it was all because we believed in this grand vision. And I remember I was talking to the Adam Lowry, one of the Method sure. founders. and Ripple, right? He now he's Ripple. Yeah. And I called him when all this started coming down. And I, I said to him, how did you get through? And he said, listen, you know, we lived on, you know, dirt, like dirt bags on the floor. We didn't have the family that you have and everything that you're managing. And so for us, it was like, okay, lesson learned. We got to forge ahead. And one of the things, one of our philosophies that I always remember, and this I think is important in starting any company, is not to get too far ahead of yourself. If you think too much about where you're going, it becomes daunting. It's taking it in the beginning when we were first going through Blue Sky, moment, by moment. Right. It leads me to my next question. Like, how do you define, you know, I think there's such an emphasis on growth, although I think things are coming back to an emphasis, emphasis on growing smart. Like, yeah. what does smart growth look like to you? It's, oh God, there's so many ways. But well, first of all, smart, I would say, again, it has to be grounded in purpose. And so smart growth is about understanding how to grow your purpose, not just numbers. Um, it, we get so obsessed with the numbers themselves that we lose sight of everything else. So it's having a perspective that's broader than that. Also in terms of growth is, you know, I have, there's different philosophies but I've been with investors that believe you've got to starve the company and 
there's reasons to be, you know, be very careful about the money that you're spending. But now I have with Mark Rampola being my lead investor from my last round and Dwayne Primovich from Bigger, who's my lead investor from this round, both my board members, they know that you've got to lean in a little bit. And at the size of the company we're in, and now I have a really strong senior executive team that I just finished hiring because we know that we need to set ourselves up for what's to come. We've seen the proof of concept. We've seen the growth that we've seen. So we might have made those hires a little earlier than other people might have, but we did the same thing at Plum. And so you have people that they have to relate to what it's like to be in a fast-growing company, but know how to get there to the next stage. So you, you mentioned you have great investors. What do you look for in a, an investor? Um, uh, obviously great. capital, but, but what do you look for? And skill so set? So much like, more than that. Right. Part of it is finding investors, especially those that want to seat on your board. Ideally, people who have been entrepreneurs have run businesses because they come, that was my point, Mark and Dwayne, is they come with a different point of view. They know what it takes to run a business and they know how hard it can be. So they have the empathy to be able to go on that ride with you in the ups and downs and be supportive on the journey. And so one of the things I always tell entrepreneurs is, you know, uh, your investors are going to give you a list of references to call. Call everyone else that they know that's not on that list. They're doing it about you. You better be doing it about them. Know that this is a marriage. And you don't go into any marriage just talking to each other a couple times. Um, I, I learn a lot about who they are as people and what makes them tick. And I'll have... Uh, I, I'll always remember where um, Dwayne called me up. This is right when we were, you know, finishing finishing our discussions and our deal. And he said to me, Cheryl, I can't put it into words why, really why this is important to me. But let me tell you about my my journey. And it's his story to tell. But he tells me this journey of, you know, where his hardships have come from his, in his life and how that's lent him to that his philosophy as an investor. And for someone to bear their soul like that to me and be willing to do that, that to me tells me I have a good investor. And to this day with Dwayne, I called him the other day and I said, oh my God, Dwayne, I'm terrified right now. The business is going so unbelievably well Everything seems so perfect. I know another shoe's gonna drop. It scares me every day. And he said, well, I'm gonna tell you what scares me. This is an investor saying this to me. What scares me is that I was, you know, I ran businesses at Boulder Brands. I started my own fund. I'm doing this for the first time. I'm scared I'm not giving you what you need. <laughs> Do you know how a conversation like that changes your whole approach to your company? And he'll send me messages saying, thank you for helping me to be better at my job. Those are the kind of investors you want to look so, for. So what are the ones you want to run away from? Well, I had it. <laughs> I've, I had it at Plum. And it was someone who called the reference list, looked great, seemed like they philosophically were in line with purpose-driven businesses. But every day with him was... It was it was crazy making, you know. It was it was the neighborhood bully that would one day be nice and the next day was throwing 
hard packed snowballs. I had a kid do this to me. Came right up to me when I was a kid. Took a hard packed snowball when I was in Michigan and slammed it in my face, you know, one of my first traumas. I was getting that all the time at Plum. It was just brutal. It was an investor. Got it. And I, I would go up and down and up and down you with his you moods. You just tune them out or they were so... It was so in your face and, and just the mood swings were right. unbelievable. And here, I thought it was just me. I, I like... I, I can't, I just can't handle it. Something's wrong with me. Now it comes later on. I talk to almost every entrepreneur that had this. He had a reputation, yeah. He had a reputation, but none of us talked about it. And here's, you know, I talk about so much about finding your tribe of entrepreneurs and being vulnerable with each other. We could have supported each other going through it, or at least we could have warned each other, but we were too busy telling each other how great everything was. So, you decide to jump back in and become the CEO of Rebel. So, so <laughs> through all this, you you know, all you've been through. What? Why? <laughs> I wasn't going to do it anymore. I was done. Yeah. I had been at Stanford, and then Plum sold, so we moved up to Wine Country in Santa Rosa. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to serve on boards and teach entrepreneurship yep. <laughs> at Sonoma State. And then Paolo Hawken, who again I mentioned is the chief innovation officer of the company, was the CEO at the time. I got introduced to him by Paul Hawken, who is the sure. father of sustainability, uh, one of the most brilliant men. And, you know, he had one of the most brilliant children with Paolo. And I had oh, met I didn't Paolo. realize that was his son. Yeah, that's his son. So Paolo has sustainability in his DNA. So he, he had introduced me when we were at Nest. I tried to hire Paolo, and then we kind of lost touch. And he reached back out into me through LinkedIn and was like, hey, I want to tell you about this cool company I have, and do you want to be a board member? So I'm like, all right, sounds pretty cool. I love Paolo, so let me let me go for it. And the more I began to know this company, the more I was like, oh my God, this has got the magic that I've seen in these other brands. And I became entranced with it. And, you know, here, I, I, what I found in it, and then I'll t- tell you what happened in a conversation with my husband. So what I was finding is this brand, it was the brand, the purpose, and the people. So I found this brand that, so healthy, you know, it's a coconut milk-based elixir made with the goodness of the, the plant queendom. That's what I've been drinking now. I've already drank one. I'm on number two. Oh my God. It's, <laughs> and it's pure to, yeah, it's pure to the core. The label is so, so incredibly clean. But yet what Paolo gets, which is really important to me um, in any company I'm a part of, is he gets the art of food. He's an artist. And so the product tastes unbelievably good it's exquisite tasting so it draws people in through the taste but then people can learn about the plants that are part of it and also importantly are super herbs herbs like turmeric with its antioxidant anti-inflammatory properties but also herbs herb adaptogens they're called like maca i'm sure you're very familiar with it reishi mushroom and ashwagandha of which there's clinical research that shows, for example, with ashwagandha, that it helps your body adapt to stress. 
uh, your individual body. So there's the pro this product that in all ways has goodness throughout it, and it's got this brand, the, the name Rebel, R-E-B-B-L, is Roots, Extracts, Berries, Barks, and Leaves. It's what's in the that. product. <laughs> it's about the attitude of the right. product. and how we can be rebels and make change in the world and in the strength of the herbs themselves. So I'm like, okay, this is a beautiful brand with such potential. And the purpose, so it was actually started by a nonprofit called Not For Sale that is all about eradicating human trafficking. And they thought of Rebel as an idea to help that cause, to help them to be able to do it through Dave Bastone, the founder of Not For Sale, you know, he, he understands the power of business to be able to make change. So how do you marry a not-for-profit with a for-profit and to help to drive, you know, help to fund the nonprofit? So now to this day, we give 2.5% of our net, sale, net sales of every bottle, not profits, net sales to not for sale, to do their work in, in rehabilitating people who have been trafficked, which, by the way, say how important this cause is. There are 30 million people in the world today that are impacted by trafficking, 80% of which are women and girls. They, if, to give you some perspective, you know, around the, when this, around this time of the Civil War, there were about 8 million people. So this is 30 million worldwide. It is the fastest growing illegal industry in the world. Where's it mostly happening? It's, it's in our backyard. It's in Oakland, California. There's really? 250,000 people who are trafficked in the United States. Um, there are people trafficked all over the world and it's it's getting worse and in, instead of better so is that so you're in this pro you're, you're meeting you know it seems like you're, you're drawn to the mission of the company and your and well what so I want to hear like the inner dialogue you know great mission great founder great product you know what what's going on in your head I have to say just with the purpose our growers now from all over the world we help their livelihood through our supply chain practices to uplift them to make sure that their lives are, are, are full of what they need to live a good life so that they're never vulnerable to trafficking to begin with. So we address it up the stream and down the stream. Um, and so imagine waking up that day of your purpose in life. That's what we do, and so and looking for the people that have the grit and the passion to do it. So what was going through my head? So Paolo, first of all, says, I've been three, CEO for three years. I've never wanted to be CEO. I like product development. So we were going through, he needed to go through a fundraise. So and I it's said, It's getting well, real, and how many SKUs do they have at this point? Or? Uh, it was, what was it, like four SKUs, six SKUs? So pretty, pretty early. Pretty early. And, um, well, we, we only, actually, we came out with the Elixir line in 2014, so it was only about, yeah, about five SKUs. So, um, so I'm like, ah, you know, I'll help you out and do this fundraising. I'll be interim CEO. And until I told Patrick, oh, I'm just yeah, doing this short-term sure. <laughs> thing. And then I'm falling more and more in love. And... Patrick and I had some really hard conversations. He, he wasn't happy at first. He's like, you know, I don't want to see what happened start all over again. You've just recovered from all of this. And we let, don't do this. And I said, I'm telling you, Patrick, 
I'm, I'm ready. I really think I'm ready to do this again. And he saw me in this interim role and how it was just like breathing new life in me. But also I was staying so connected with the family and I was putting things in place that helped me to. And he was able to see that I had learned how to set my parameters and that I, it was no longer this obsession of just this. Right. It was, again, realizing how to make this ecosystem work. And then they asked me to stay on permanently and had another hard discussion. I'm like, <laughs> I got to do it. And you know, bringing in these great investors, also in, in this great board, just encouraged me. Like we have the full support of an amazing team and an amazing board that is going to help us to get through this. So you have an amazing product. How many SKUs do you have now? We have a total. We just introduced three more. So what is it now? Six, nine. 11? 11, 11 SKUs. So like where, where I'm curious, like where is Rebel going? And I think like beverage, there's just been so much change and it's interesting, like functional beverage in that yes. space that you operate in. Like where do you Plant see? Plant-based. Yeah, exactly. Like where, A, I'm curious, like what's the vision of Rebel and where do you see, like what's next for you? What are you working on? And then like yeah. what do you see going on in the larger like functional beverage category, like areas? I'm just curious. Yeah, well in terms of Rebel, um, the way we're thinking about the brand now, we call it in our new our new label, which we don't have right here, but we call it Righteous Plant Alchemy, a botanical revolution for good. And what that means to us as a brand is it's about the world of plants. Uh, our dedication is to plants. Our dedication is to plant-based beverages and beverages that make a statement that help people to learn. We call it, I love how Paulo says it, having one foot in the known and one foot in the unknown. So that we'll bring all this stuff that seeped in everything that we know about the goodness of plants and what people are learning over time that people understand, but we also put a foot in the unknown. When we put, first put these herb adaptogens into our products, people didn't know about them. Many people still don't. But again, we bring people in through the taste so that they can learn more and more about what this world of plants that they might not even know about. So that's what righteous plant alchemy means to us. And botanical revolution for good is what we can do with our products. So that's the brand. And you can imagine all the places that the brand can go under that umbrella. In terms of functional beverage, I think that there is now a space, there is a category here to be carved out that is all about the goodness of herbs. And that doesn't really exist. We were the first ones to do this in a be beverage and we're starting to see others follow. So p consumers are coming in and looking for that. I would also say, you know, there, there's a space, the world of, of uh, beverages is full of refreshing functional beverages. And there haven't been functional beverages that are more about satiety. And that's what this product is. It's nutrient dense. So I think that there, there is going to be a way that you see more and more brands moving to nutrient density in their drinks. So I want to ask you, so the, the industry has just exploded. Uh, so I'm curious, where do you see things, like what other categories or things are interesting to you? And how do you think, 
you know, with the explosion, the retail landscape has changed. Whole Foods yeah. is moving to central buying now where one buyer yeah. buys everyone, they're getting in the region. Yeah. Like, how do you see this industry growing in the next year? Like, what's exciting to you? What categories are interesting? What's, what's going to happen with Whole Foods changing their buying and other retailers coming in? Like, what is this industry going to look like? Yeah, it's a couple things that are very interesting to me. The fact that organic and, and healthy is being embraced by so many other retailers, I think is incredibly exciting because it helps people be healthier. It's spreading the ability of, to or, of organic to be able to change the world in terms of you know regenerative growth. Um, and also people really caring so much about what a brand is all about at its core, you know, from, from the benefits itself to, all, to, to the purpose, and that being incredibly important and there being so much transparency, that is huge in terms of its ability to influence bigger and bigger retailers to start to embrace that and take that on. So I think the accessibility to so many more people is paramount to have that accessibility. And what I also see, though, that's incredibly exciting, I was having a conversation with someone in the industry about this, is the thought of the industry starting to think about things in terms of usage occasion. So we talk about categories in this very almost, I think, potentially old school way, which is beverages belong here. Uh, Eggs belong over here. Produce belongs over there. But people don't necessarily eat that way. So you go through a store, and that's why, you know, they're losing the center of the store. Because people are looking to eat based on how they eat throughout their day. So what is the usage occasion for the products? And how do you start grouping products together in terms of usage occasion? So... Is would, anyone doing that? Are any retailers experimenting with that? Someone told me there's a small retailer that I haven't, I don't even know who it is. I didn't get, the, I didn't, the person couldn't remember the name. There's a small retailer in Northern oh. California who is, um, is doing just, just that. So this movement, this is going to be what brings people back to the center of the store if we can start doing this integration a lot better. Imagine lunchtime. I walk up and there's a lunchtime section of the store. So what are the, like, you know, we talked about the explosion and access and and that's incredible for consumers. Uh, What about for the entrepreneur? You know, there used to be a playbook in terms of, you know, you start local, you go to a regional Whole Foods, you demo, you do press and you figure out, get the velocity, then you go to the next region, then you go national and then you go to Kroger and, you know, people go to Expo West, they show up, they do the whole thing. It seems like you know, that's changed because there are so many, the, the interest level is so high, you've got a lot of other retailers being very competitive to Whole Foods. Um, and just how does that change as an entrepreneur? How you look at growth and are just entrepreneurs out there who I'm sure are listening and like they've got a brand, they, want, they have yeah. dreams. Like how, how, like how, is it, how has the game changed, so to speak, to succeed in this space? Well, you know, I th- it, it's interesting that you say that because that's exactly the path we still have been pursuing at Rebel. Because I think that you st- it's still so important to find that core of early adopters and innovators that will take your product and drive the velocity right. to begin with. So, I, you know, I still, there are many retailers that you could 
introduce the product in. But I still think it's got to be retailers that have that core early adopter going to it. And I believe strongly that you have to have that so that you have these, and you know, we talk about this a lot at Stanford, you have this core that's carrying you and telling other people about it before you go out. Because you know what? There's different levels of tolerance in different retailers. If I go into a Safeway or a Kroger or a Walmart, and they're not, they're expecting a certain level of velocity right out of the gate, I'll be kicked out of there so fast. And there needs to be consumer adoption time. So Whole Foods is our partner through and through. And we, you know, we pay attention to that. We make sure that we're looking with them in terms of what they need. And they're helping us to see where the early adopter is going. And yeah, now we're national in natural food. We just got national with Whole Foods. And we're starting to expand into conventional retail, conventional grocery, because we know we have the velocities that is that a Kroger is going to look at and say, okay, this is sustainable in my store. Um, I know that other people are looking at some other retailers, you know, Costco, for example, of introducing there. And I think Costco has, is a great account in so many ways, but a Costco will be the first to tell you, they will kick you out immediately if it's not working and they don't guarantee anything, even for brands that have been around for a long time. So building, you said smart growth. It's building a business that is sustainable, not a business that is just going like this. It's sustainability and how you think through that strategically and having the discipline to do that is critical. So do you have any advice for any entrepreneurs in the space listening right now? Well, one of the things I'm going to actually go, go back to not, and not just this space, but any entrepreneur. Um, Steve Blank, who is one of the people who coined the term the lean startup. And for entrepreneurs in our space, the Valley knows all about this stuff. For entrepreneurs in our space that haven't heard of the lean startup and Steve Blank and Eric Reese, you've got to do some research on it. And what Steve Blank's philosophy, this is rocking the world of how you think about startups and in consumer goods companies too, which is, he, he has this wonderful quote, which is, a startup is not a company. A startup is an experiment waiting to find a sustainable, valuable business model. We, we just became a company because we just figured out that the experiment worked. So what I'd say to that? How do you know what, what what how do you know when the experiment works? Well, you and there's so much stuff ingrained in there, but Steve uh, and I did in all my classes that I did at Sonoma State, we have a one-page business model that shows every single part of your business model, be it consumers that you're targeting, uh, partners that you need to have, how you make money in the business. And there's nine pieces to that. When you're first starting, go and write your hypothesis for every single one. And this is the beginning either. Try to bootstrap it the best that you can. 
write your hypotheses for every single one, and then go out into the marketplace and test them. And every time you find a hypothesis that's working or not working, it's like any science experiment. You literally cross it out on your one-page sheet and you put down your next hypothesis. And you go test that in the market and you cross down your next hypothesis. And you, all of them, all these building blocks of the business model uh, need to work together. And then when you find, hmm, you've got things that seem like on this business model canvas that are working based on everyone you've talked to, based on the experiments you're doing in the marketplace, and you're starting to see the growth, and you're like, okay, now I can invest a little more and see more growth and invest a little more. It's, think about it as an experiment, right. not a company. So my last question, if you, if you could go back in time and give advice to your 20-something self who was brand manager or Quaker, what would that, what would that be? <laughs> Don't try to have so much control. <laughs> Life is going to take you on journeys that you never thought of. And just learn to let go with that and, and, follow, and follow the journey and learn that there are going to be hard times. And that's all part of writing your story. And just take it in the really hardest of times, step by step and moment by moment to get through it. Wise words. Thank you so much. Thank you so Every, much. This was so great, Everyone, Jason. check out Killing It and Rebel, my personal favorite. Turmeric golden milk is pretty darn good. Turmeric lemon tart and then dark <laughs> chocolate protein. Oh my God, to die I'll for. I'll have to try that one. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone. <laughs>